0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 15 of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight, I am talking with the Reverend Brian Crawl about shamanism, mysticism, and all sorts of wonderful things. Let the secrets be revealed. So you are a shaman, I gather?
1: Yes, I am a shaman by initiation. I am not a shamanic practitioner, as many people who call themselves shaman are. not That's not a valid practice, but uh, there is a difference between being a practitioner and an actual initiate. Uh, I'm also a metaphysicist and a Taoist, uh, which means that I practice a very specific form of shamanism that is Taoism, and I'm subscribed to Taoist metaphysics and uh, am very focused in that whole realm. And I also am a Tantric Upasaka of Sri Vidya. Upasaka means I'm a student, I'm an initiate of Sri Vidya Tantra, but there is no term for being a Tantric initiate. Everyone who is an initiate calls themselves a student until you reach the uh, level of being a guru in which you have actually merged with a specific deity in consciousness and spirit and have the uh and have the consciousness of that deity and the power of that deity uh you are a upasaka so you're either a student or a guru in tantra so uh i am an initiate but a student of srividya tantra which is the world's most predominant form of tantra in the authentic <laughs> the authentic realm of tantra not the new age americanized what is called neo tantra which is found in america and is all about sex this is actually the world's this is actually a this is actually a true authentic traditional form of tantra found in india and happens to not only be the most predominant form of authentic tantra which in many temples is part of a hindu orthodoxy but in my temple. It's not part of the orthodoxy. Uh, The lineage that I belong to in this tantra is a 15,000 year old lineage. So it's one of the world's oldest lineages. And so I have, you know, a a few different spiritual titles. I'm also a holistic healer. uh, That could be considered a spiritual title, although it doesn't have to be because sometimes I'm not practicing healing in a spiritual way. But You know, sometimes I am practicing it in a spiritual way. But, you know, the conglomerate (laughs) for all of these titles, it would be just shaman.
0: Which greatly simplifies it for everyone. So can you um, tell us a little more about your tantric practices and how it relates to your involvement with Taoism
1: and holistic healing? Yes, tantra which the a is long keep in mind. <laughs> people people in America will say tantra but that is not correct. And it's funny because even people who teach it will say tantra because of the fact that they have actually never been taught true tantra. They are teaching a americanized version of it which really has taken just the sexual aspect. Um but my first let's see but the first things that I learned about in the Eastern spiritual realm of philosophy and religious traditions were Hinduism and Taoism. at least the, the first two that I really resonated with. I learned about Judaism in school, didn't really resonate with that very strongly, at least not until later in life when I got into Kabbalah, but I learned about Hinduism and Taoism and found that I resonated with those very strongly, so I delved very deeply into both of them. and. Taoism, I delved deeper into because it was very abstract and very ultimate in the sense that it was so abstract. I found it very enlightening. It was just a very ultimate philosophy. And then I got into Taoist. And after getting to the philosophical side, which is more foundational, I got into the deeper metaphysics and the science behind it. I researched Montauk Chia's work, and, um, let's see, Michael Hearn, hold on, let me just check and see if I get this guy's name right, and then got into all of the Taoist magic and shamanism that Montauk Chia talks about, and Richard Hearn talks about in his book. So I got into the Ching, I got into Taoist meditation and ritual, Taoist sacred sexuality, which they're form of sacred sexuality is just really ultimate. Uh, However, I did not have a Taoist community or temple locally that I could attend. And finding Taoist temples and communities is actually very hard because it's very esoteric. Uh, I was able to find books on it and able to practice it on my own. But, uh, you know, the temples, the, the Taoist temples that exist are very hidden in remote spots in Asia, and I was never able to travel to one of them. So, in that sense, there was a certain ceiling to my Taoist practices. I could never find a guru or monk to, I could never find a guru or monk or shaman to teach me more in the traditional realm. I never had a temple I could practice Taoist ritual in or a community to fellowship with. However, I did find that in Tantra. There was a Local temple for Sri Vidya Tantra, which was very auspicious for me to have here in my city, which is otherwise, you know, very small and, and non-progressive. You know, it's, I don't live in California or anything where mm-hmm. these types of things are common. Uh, but I did have this very hardcore, authentic tantric temple that I started visiting and found that in the realm of the metaphysical science and the magical rituals. Uh, this was also very ultimate and hardcore and really quenched my thirst for the science of spirituality and the, uh, and, the, uh, and the magical ritual aspect. So I started going there regularly and eventually took initiation and then started going there a few times a week and doing intensive training there in the metaphysics and in the ritual. The science behind everything that is done there is extremely impressive to someone who is a Westerner and scientific and intellectual thinker myself because the Guru's Guru is the world's third leading nuclear physicist and anyone who knows about Hinduism or Ayurveda, Knows that they do have a serious science that is uh, that can that is by modern Western science, even though it is an ancient science, it is very much in alignment with modern Western science. So you can, you know, gather data and get evidence on the validity of all the things that are practiced there, and we do. You know, having my guru's guru be the world's third leading nuclear physicist. We do all sorts of experiments: physics experiments, chemistry experiments. You know, we test the electromagnetic fields and energy. We te- we test the electromagnetic and energy fields surrounding our deities uh, after ritual to make sure that the ritual took the right effect. And we find that we that when we find that we actually do, and we find that we actually are taking measurements on these things that corroborate their validity these deities do have energy fields you know we know that for instance when we put holy water into a copper cup the wa- the metaphysical and the metaphysical and chemical applications of the copper on the water are valid this is not just theories you know so we know that copper when it reacts with water causes copper cupric oxide which sterilizes the water and has medicinal and metaphysical properties so it's a very scientific tradition, and there is a lot to it and the rituals are very impressive and very mystical uh this It's just a really awesome tradition, so it quenched my thirst for all of that, and I was able to get very deeply involved in that so not to say that it took the place of Taoism, I was just able to do more with that than I was with Taoism because of the fact that there is a temple here and someone who's someone who I could take as my guru and take initiation from and become part of the lineage for. So, that's the story with that.
0: Excellent. And the Vedic system of thought has appealed to a lot of physicists. In fact, almost all of the prominent physicists of the 20th century, Oppenheimer, Schrodinger, Max Planck and Einstein admired the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita.
1: Yes. yes. And The Vedas and the Vedic tradition actually had the first university, like tens of thousands of years ago, way before the universities that came up in Greece, the Vedic people had universities, and there's always been a great science to this.
0: So... Your Taoist practice is more arcane than it. it is more of a something that you contemplate upon, since you have no Taoist near you.
1: Well, I, I pull it from books. Yes. It's not, I wouldn't call it intuitive. I pull it from books.
0: And Montauk Chia is a good author. I actually have one of his books right beside me. And uh, do you incorporate Qigong or any sort of breathing practices like that in your work?
1: Yes. Yeah, I don't use Qigong, but I do different forms of breath work, sometimes Daoist, sometimes not. You know, I tend to sort of uh, oscillate between different traditions and different types of practice that are native to different traditions. And, you know, sometimes we'll just freestyle it and do something that is of my own creation or maybe something that is probably rooted in a tradition, but I don't really know what tradition I'm pulling from in the moment that I do it just because I've researched so many things. And, you know, sometimes there's things that are in my subconscious that I don't remember exactly where they're coming from, (laughs) but I know that they are valid. Yes, and
0: the truth is um, some of the doctrines start to blend together and some of the practices do to independent discovery or cross-fertilization of ideas. Right. Then the thing that unites this shamanism is the world's oldest religion. We have no idea when people started doing this. Or why, which would be an interesting question in and of itself. So, I suppose the question is, what is a
1: shaman? You're asking me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, a shaman is a term that does not have a simple definition. You could ask someone what it is and, and get a simple definition from them because of the fact that they are filtering it through a specific cultural lens. So, they might say a shaman is a healer or a shaman is a medicine man. You know, when, when I ask my Native American relatives what a shaman is in their culture, they say that's a medicine man, right? But the word shaman is something that is an archetypal term that connotes a conglomerate of things that is found in a person. And the term shaman actually is not something that is native to any culture. It is an English word, and it is rooted in a Siberian word because of the fact that the scholars who formed this word found that the oldest, most archaic forms of shamanism they could find were In Siberia. So they wanted this word to be rooted in a Siberian word. However, it is in fact just a made-up word derived from its Siberian root. And the term is meant to connote a person who could be found in any culture who is a holy man of sorts, in whatever aspect you know that culture finds to be holy, whatever in whatever way that culture deems this man holy. He is a holy man who is responsible for performing healing and or being a psychologist or therapist and or spiritual teacher or guru or guide, you know, however you want to define the spiritual teacher or preacher, uh, as well as a magician and someone who can do Magic and sorcery, as well as instructing people on the metaphysical and existential nature of reality. So he is responsible for all things spiritual, as well as a lot of physical things, too, such as the physical healing or, you know, just teaching people about the ways of the world, as well as the ways of the unworldly. And what a shaman and what makes a shaman a shaman, in addition to being able to perform and you are all of these roles in whatever cultural context he or she is, is that he is someone who uh, has gone through initiation in a specific context, again, that is native to that culture, which involves sickness and a death experience, which causes him to dissolve and lose his ego and go on a mystical journey with his consciousness, And in this mystical journey, he encounters spirit guides of some sort, be they deities or animal spirit guides or some sort of etheric entity or the Godhead itself. He could just be, he could just have his consciousness and spirit absorbed into oneness with the Godhead. And through this entity that is his benefactor of knowledge, he receives enlightenment and the knowledge of the metaphysical nature and archetypes of the universe, and then brings that back to his body, which he is then reborn with. And being reborn with this enlightenment, he is also reborn with spiritual power that is given to him both through this entity and the knowledge that has been bestowed upon him and then returns to his community with this knowledge and this power and having been reborn as a new person. So he no longer is the old person that he was. He will oftentimes take on a new name because he is now a spiritual being and not just an existential one and is an entirely different person. Uh, and that is not to say that your ego can't return to you, but he is supposed to be Mostly egoless. (laughs) However, there are a lot of shamanic uh, traditions in engaging in the social community, which are actually very egoic. (laughs) We can get into that more later. So uh, what a shaman is is someone who has not only gone through this initiation and died and been reborn with mystical metaphysical knowledge and power, but someone who has spirit guides or allies who can help him. And someone who can alter his consciousness to perform spiritual work and thus can perform these roles that he does with physical healing, psychology, and the teaching and preaching of existential and metaphysical truth. As well as performing magical work or otherwise known as energy work.
0: And the cross cultural continuity is remarkable. Of course, as you mentioned, there are significant differences between traditions, but there are also a
1: great number of similarities. Correct. The reason why the scholars who. The reason why the scholars in the academic community made this word was because they wanted to have one single term that would signify these practices which are found in every culture. So that they could just talk about them in general without getting caught up in these semantics of the different (laughs) terms these men and women are called by in different cultures because of the fact that they really are all the same. While a shaman in Africa and a shaman in Native North America and a shaman in Native South America and a shaman in Asia are going to have certain differences in the tools that they use. One may use a rattle, another may use a feather, you know, another may use a fan, you know, in Asia, they're going to use a fan. <laughs> and in all these different cultures, there's going to be different tools that are used for their magical rituals and procedures. And there's going to be, and there's going to be slightly different sociolinguistic terminology that they preach their truths by. And, different ways in which they go through initiation and have their different practices and teachings and ways they do everything. However, essentially, they are all the same. (laughs) They're all the same. When you remove these slight variances, you know, the feather and the fan have the same function and the rattle and the drum have the same function. Okay. So, and, and the teachings of the truths that these, and the truths that these shaman are teaching, are, again, essentially the same metaphysical truths. So, being as how this is an archetypal thing, they wanted to create an archetypal term to refer to it by.
0: This reminds me of the American hypnotherapist Milton Erickson, Ah. who underwent something. Well, he underwent a shamanic initiation through a very serious illness and through sensory mortification. He battled polio poor vision, poor hearing, and yet that allowed him to focus on the verbal and become one of the greatest psychiatrists of the 20th century. His feats are still legendary.
1: Yes, and that's why I say that shaman also functioned in the realm of psychology, which is something that only a serious academic will tell you. Now, there's a lot of shamanic practitioners out there who will try to tell you what shamanism is, and again, they might use the one cultural form of it that they are practicing. You know, if you if you talk to someone who is here in America and is trying to align themselves with some Native American practices, they'll say, "Oh, well, a shaman is someone who who uses sage and drumming to cleanse and and and, and induce trance and such." But that's not what a shaman is. <laughs> uh, a shaman is someone who does all of these things, and something that is not known by many of these new age shamanic practitioners is that shaman were actually psychologists in many ways in the Western context. You know, if, if, if a Western psychologist was to go and talk to a shaman as many do, <laughs> and you can find books written by psychologists who have actually gone and studied shamanism. They find that the shaman do engage in psychotherapy. They will use, they will use psychiatric medicines that are found in plants to alter people's consciousness and their uh, neurological makeup and make changes to the brain. And they will also perform hypnotherapy on people. Shamans were the first psychologists and the first hypnotherapists. So hypnosis is something that really comes from shamanism, not somewhere in the modern West a couple hundred years ago. Right.
0: Although it has been formalized to some extent.
1: Yes. It has been formalized in the modern Western (laughs) psychological scientific context, which is very useful. You know, it it is uh, more advanced in that sense. You know, we have neuro-linguistic programming now, which is even more advanced than the hypnosis that was formed a couple hundred years ago. Uh, So, yeah, we've continued to advance upon this thing, which is rooted in shamanism. And, you know, the shaman back then we're really performing it more in the sense of guided meditation which you know didn't have a lot of scientific uh technology or formalities or structure attached to it in the way that modern western science does and i am someone who does practice it in the modern western context and in the context and in the newest context which is neurolinguistic programming and find that these are very useful technologies
0: yes and uh... I imagine that someone in a traditional community places more faith in a healer than someone here in the West who may have significant doubts. So the techniques do have to be adopted and presented in a slightly different way. Are there any particular meditation techniques you found to be exceptionally helpful to you or you would recommend to beginners?
1: Yes. My absolute favorite meditation technique for someone who is beginning or advanced is a form of internal alchemy, which is a Taoist practice. And this uses what is called circular breathing, which is a very fundamental type of breath work. But again, it's something that advanced people can still get a lot out of. It is something that is very intense. It can be something you use in a very basic sort of introductory way, which is more gentle, but it is something you can use in an extremely intense way that will be one of the most ultimate ways you can perform breath work. And what circular breathing means is you are breathing in a way in which there is no pauses between the in-breath and the out-breath. Okay, so you empty your lungs fully and then you fill them fully and then empty them again and fill them again without ever pausing between. And what circular breathing means is you are breathing in a way in which there is no pauses between the in-breath and the out-breath. Okay, so you empty your lungs fully and then you fill them fully. And then empty them again and fill them again without ever pausing between doing these things. And you need to do this in a steady rhythm, okay, at a steady pace. And a pace that is not too slow, but also not too fast. If you do this too fast, you're going to cause hyperventilation right? And this is not something that you need to consult with a medical professional about or have someone guiding you. You just need to make sure that you're not doing it too fast. (laughs) And you'll know when you're starting to hyperventilate and you can recalibrate this. I often will start out doing this faster to begin with just to sort of induce the breath work and just to sort of induce the energy work and the trance state more rapidly. And then once I have induced these energies in the trance and I feel it coming on then I'll slow it down to a pace which is sustainable because a fast pace is not sustainable. But I'm not doing it so fast that I'm causing myself to hyperventilate. But while you may want to do it faster when you're first getting started, just so that you can feel the onset of the effects more quickly, you need to then do it at a pace which is going to be something you can relax into and which can ultimately sustain itself. So it's something that forms a rhythm that you then do not even have to consciously monitor. But as the trance, but as the trance, uh, but as you enter trance, you will then not even be in control of your breath. It will just be happening automatically of its own accord. And this may not sound feasible to people who have never practiced meditation before. Okay, but when you are sleeping, you're not thinking about breathing. And in most cases, you're not thinking about breathing, okay? People rarely think about their breathing, all right? And so it may not... When you're not thinking about your breathing, most cases you're breathing shallow breaths, your breath is minimalized, but you can maximize your breath and then cause it to be something that is sustained and you're not thinking about it as well. All right. But you do have to first put attention to your breath and monitor it and get it into this pattern of emptying your lungs fully and fulfilling them fully and doing this over the course of a minute or two before that will then become your body's natural pattern for breathing which you can then withdraw your attention from and you want to make sure that you are emptying your lungs fully and your stomach is going in and you are fulfilling them fully and your stomach is going out and your shoulders are going up okay you don't want to just be breathing medium breaths you want to be breathing and exhaling full breaths so your stomach should be protruding to the maximum capacity and your shoulders should be going up and your stomach should be going in and your shoulders going down and you will feel that your lungs are being emptied fully and are being filled fully. The trick here is that you shouldn't be trying to get out every last bit of air and in every last bit of air in a way that causes your breathing to slow at these points. Because if you're focusing too much on trying to fill your lungs up as much as you possibly can as you reach the top of your in-breath and and uh, extinguish your breath from them as much as you possibly can as you reach the out-breath, your breathing is going to slow as you try to get in and out these little bits, The as you try to get in and out these last little tiny bits of breath, right? So don't Ever slow your breathing. It must be consistent in and consistent out, up and down, up and down without slowing or stopping at the top and bottom. And what this does is it causes you to maximize the amount of oxygen intake that your body and your brain are getting. And oxygen is actually the most fundamental mind-altering drug out there. (laughs) <laughs> and you don't realize this because you're always breathing a minimal amount of air and getting the most minimal amount of oxygen that your body needs. But when you maximize the amount of oxygen you could possibly get, you will start to feel what is called by drug users a buzz. Okay? I'm sure you've heard the word buzz before if you've ever drink alcohol or talk to someone who's drink alcohol, you know, they talk about getting a buzz when they drink. And that is what you will get off of oxygen when you maximize your oxygen intake. And what happens is this oxygen will increase your blood flow and your circulation and will cause tingling sensations throughout your nervous system and increase your brain function while also relaxing your brain. Since you have so much blood flowing through your body and your brain and so much oxygen coursing through your nervous system, your brain is getting so much nutrient from this oxygen that it's able to relax and enter a trance state. Your brain waves are going to actually go down to the alpha and theta waves, which are very meditative. And all of your physiological and psychological functions are going to be enhanced because oxygen is just the most powerful nutrient that your body needs and can make use of. And we take that for granted because of the fact that we don't have to go to the store and buy oxygen and, you know, cook it in our kitchen and then eat it. It's something that is all around us. And we're always getting. So we actually don't even think about how much of a great nutrient this is since we don't have to think about (laughs) getting it. (laughs) But we do need it more than anything out there. We need it all the time. You generally don't go more than a second or two without breathing. And this is because your body needs oxygen more than anything else because it is the most useful thing that your body can use. And when you maximize how much you're getting, you will see so many great physiological and psychological changes being made in your physical and mental states will become altered. And you will enter a trance and feel a... And you will feel a physical buzz as well as entering a trance state and you will feel high and even have a mystical experience if you are doing this in meditation as I talk about. I don't recommend doing this while you're driving. This is something that you can do outside of a formalized meditation, just sitting at your couch or sitting at your desk if you need to take a break from work. But I do recommend doing this in meditation, ideally when you first wake up in the morning or when you're about to go to bed at night. Yeah, let me me rephrase that. And in the mystical and metaphysical side, what this does with your physical and spiritual bodies is the oxygen has a form of energy, which is called prana, which is a universal energy that is in Hinduism a synonym for breath. So prana, translated to English from the Hindu Sanskrit word, So, the Sanskrit word is prana, and when you translate it into English, it means breath energy, and it connotes the energy of the universe and of the godhead Brahman, and it's breath that it is giving us. And when you maximize the intake of this breath energy, which is found in the particles of oxygen, you are you are energizing your body as well. You are creating a great influx of this universal energy into your physical and spiritual bodies. And you will feel this energy spreading throughout your body and reacting with your nervous system. And your spirit will be filling up with white light. And to do this as a formalized Taoist inner alchemy meditation, what you want to do is imagine this breath energy, this prana as white light. And you want to imagine breathing it into your nose and you want to be doing all of this breath work through your nose, not your mouth. Because when you breathe in through your nose, the oxygen passes right through the brain first and foremost and your brain gets more of it quicker. And you want to imagine it Going through your nose and first igniting your third eye with this white light and then passing down through your throat chakra and your heart chakra into the area of your lungs. And in between your heart and stomach chakras is where this energy gets integrated into your body. And you want to imagine this energy pooling in this area around your diaphragm where your lungs are and then filling up your heart chakra and your stomach chakra and the whole area of your torso with white light, and then it spreading throughout your, and then spreading throughout the rest of your body from there, filling up your chest and shoulders, spreading throughout your legs and your arms, and then filling up your head, and then spreading through the bottoms of your feet and the top of your head and then diffusing out through the skin and through your spirit and the area around you and then merging you with the universe as you take in more and more of this and your body cannot even hold it anymore and it just diffuses out through the universe and you become one with this universal energy which is very much a sim, which is very much similar to a tantric breathwork meditation. You'll see that there are a lot of similarities between Taoism and Hindu yoga, such as tantra yoga. So this is a really great practice for a beginner or an advanced person alike. It is very intense. You can achieve a altered state of consciousness within about two minutes and then achieve a mystical state within about five minutes if you are doing this properly. And of course, everyone is different. So don't place any expectations on your meditation practice. You know, having goals and expectations in your meditation practice is very counterproductive. So even though I said you can achieve a mystical state within five minutes, you don't want to expect that and then give up if that's not happening for you in five minutes. You know, for some people, especially if they're beginners and they're first trying this for the first time, could take you 15 or 20 minutes to achieve a mystical state. I really don't know, you know, what your brain chemistry is, the way that your system is wired or any of that stuff. So while I say that you can (laughs) and will, through practice, achieve this mystical state in about five minutes, that's not something to expect or uh, get frustrated with if it doesn't happen that way. But it is an amazing practice. It is my absolute favorite practice. And when you try it, which you should, <laughs> you will see exactly why this is my favorite.
0: I definitely have enjoyed the work I've done with circular breathing and with Qigong.
1: Oh, you've done circular breathing before? Yes. Okay, so you know, you can, you can vouch for the effectiveness of it. It is, it is
0: remarkable, and the, I find it uh, disturbing the when these raging skeptics who read only Richard Dawkins all day, every day, say, well, this stuff is useless, which is ridiculous because there's an abundance of scientific literature corroborating the usefulness of deep breathing. And at right. the very least, we know that it de-stresses a person, it reduces their blood pressure. Right. Right and of course by just reducing the stress hormones in your system there will be a myriad of benefits
1: yes i yeah i really cannot list the number of physical and psychological benefits of circular breathing and intake and maximizing the intake of oxygen there are a number of medicinal of medicinal aspects to this process and the ways in which it will positively affect your body and brain. It's something that you can research, but you really just have to do it because it's these are effects that you can feel immediately within the first two minutes, sometimes within the first 20 to 30 seconds. I mean, when I'm doing the circular breathing, like I said, I start out doing it a bit faster than when I'm, you know, recalibrating to do it in a way that can be relaxed into a automated rhythm. Uh, So my first 30 seconds to two minutes, I'm doing it quite fast. And I do go into an altered state within 30 seconds in most cases. And you will feel that too if you are doing it starting slightly faster. So, you know, it's something that if you want, go ahead and research the great benefits, physical and mental to maximizing your oxygen intake but you could just go ahead and do it right now <laughs> you could just do it and within two minutes you will feel your state altered you will feel that buzz well people who engage in heavy physical exercise
0: are somewhat familiar with this phenomenon it's not exactly yes. the same because it, endorphins are also partially responsible for the right. high, but
1: it's similar to the runner's high that people who run or people who work out get. I mean, they are also engaging their muscles. So they're also engaging their muscles in addition to their cardiovascular system so that it's not just about the increased oxygen intake. It's about the increased blood flow. But you do get increased blood flow just by doing circular breathing. Um, it's just that, you know, they're getting more increased blood flow to the muscles that are being targeted. But, yeah, they're going to get a similar high. Uh, It's just got more endorphins and more physical aspects to it.
0: And they're focusing on what they're doing rather than their breath alone
1: or some abstract concept. But it is still very much a meditation. It can be. It should be. And that's why a lot of athletes are very spiritual people. Some of them even get into the types of stuff that we're talking about, uh, such as, on, what's his name? Dan Millman? Such as Dan Millman, who was an Olympic athlete who actually underwent two different shamanic apprenticeships with different shamans and became a world famous shamanic initiate and teacher of shamanism. I highly recommend you reading his book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which is about his first shamanic apprenticeship as he is uh, going through the climax of his career as an Olympic athlete. And then the second one, which advances upon the foundation set by the first book, uh, and doesn't involve athletics, but is just about his shamanic apprenticeship, and goes into the Hawaiian realm of shamanism, which is called Kahuna. Uh, that book is called The Sacred Journey of the Peaceful Warrior. I recommend that even more, but it is, you know, oftentimes good to read these books in succession. You can, however, just skip to the second book if you want to get very in-depth about this and get into the kahuna aspects of, and get into the kahuna form of shamanism, which is one of my favorite forms of shamanism. But if you are someone who is an athlete, you will very much appreciate his books and probably want to start with the first one, which involves more of those athletics, athletic aspects. And there's also a movie you can watch too, which involves the athletic aspects as well as his apprenticeship. So, So if you are a a modern Western type of person or a uh, jock or athlete like I was when I got into spirituality, uh, you will very much appreciate this stuff. It's exactly what got me into shamanism. I was an athlete and got into holistic health and hypnosis and other forms of self-improvement and from there it just advanced into spirituality and these things are very much related and i highly recommend you use them in cooperation with one another
0: that is fascinating and i will include a link to the book on the blog In your book, you mention chakras. How exactly do you interpret their existence? Because it brings to mind an essay by Ken Rober, in which he ponders whether they truly exist or not, or whether they're just useful tools.
1: Well, chakras are not just a theory. They are something that has been measured by modern scientific instruments. The spiritual body, which it's called the bioplasm by modern science again it is not just a theory it is not a theory anymore that people have a spirit this is something that has been photographed by cameras which can photograph energy just like um just like a camera can Uh, just like certain cameras can photograph heat signatures, there are cameras that can photograph different types of energy, such as electromagnetic energy, such as electromagnetic energy and radiation. And the chakras have been detected by these and other instruments, okay? And what the chakras are, are like organs. Just as you have your heart and your lungs and your kidney and your liver, that process your blood and bodily fluids, the chakras, the chakras are, the chakras are what circulates your energies in your spirit. Okay. The spirit is in the shape of what is called a torus, which is like a donut shape. All right. It is a cylinder that has been turned into a circle. The ends have, if you, if you take a cylinder and you, Bring the end to the other end and connect them. You have a donut shape. And if, and if you were to lay this donut shape down and then pull up the top of it and elongate it so that the center is actually very narrow and so that the center is actually extremely narrow and in the spirit in the body, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> So that the center is actually very narrow. This is the shape of the spirit. And in the spirit body, the center is so narrow that it's actually like a pinhole. Okay? And this center is what runs down through the chakras. And the outer edge, and the outer edges of this torus shape extend out to about arm's length. They can be constricted if you live in a highly populated or polluted city. But people who live in uh, less populated areas, especially those who live in suburbia or in the countryside, their torus is going to be much more expansive. It'll expand to arm's length, sometimes even larger, sometimes even longer. Okay. And it extends up above the head a little bit. And this circulates, uh, down through the chakras to, through the bottoms of the feet and out and around to about arm's length and up and down through the top of the head. And it is your chakras job. And your chakras are these orbs, these spinning orbs of energy that are vortexes. And it is their job to pull your energies down and circulate them out through the bottom. All right. And it is their job to pull your energies down through the top and circulate them out through the bottom. Every chakra's job is to pull the energies down through the top and circulate them out through the bottom to the next chakra below them, or if it's the root chakra, out through the bottom of the feet, okay? And each chakra is a different color and corresponds to different bodily functions and surrounding organs as well, okay? So, your third eye and crown chakra, they're... In your brain, and or they're they're in your head and are responsible for brain functions. Your throat chakra is of course responsible for your throat function. Your stomach chakra is responsible for stomach function, and your sex chakra is responsible for sex function. And you know, the sex chakra and your uh, stomach chakra and your heart chakra—they also have other organs associated with them. They're in charge of the surrounding areas. Okay, so these are not just things that are only working with your spirit, but they are tied to your physical body as well. And they also have other existential aspects to them as well. Okay. There can be different issues with your body or your mind or your life that are attached to these as well. If you have a certain type of trauma, this is going to affect a certain chakra and it's going to hold on to that trauma. If you're in a car accident, that could you can actually have some adverse energy stored in that chakra that is causing uh some adverse effects on your life moving forward or if you you know were raped your sex chakra would hold negative energies and you need to do some healing with your sex chakra to overcome the trauma associated with that rape or if you had a brain injury again your third eye chakra would be affected by that so chakras can hold energies that are adverse And you could need to do healing with that chakra. And that's where a lot of holistic healers will perform healing is with these chakras. If you go to a holistic healer and tell them that you were raped, if you go to an energy healer and tell them that you were raped and that you have sexual blockage, they're going to work with your sex chakra to release that sexual blockage there. Um, So there is a lot of different functions So there's a lot of different ways in which these chakras function, but I think that you get the basic gist of it (laughs) now with that explanation. And I think it's funny that educated
0: people, even people who are educated in the biological sciences, think of the brain as an organ that is completely separate from the body instead of the hub of
1: the nervous system, which, of course, extends throughout the body. Right. And 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 that's exactly how I see the brain, too, because... The nervous system is part of the brain. And your nervous system extends throughout your entire body. So your brain is really part of your body.
0: That's an unfortunate relic from Descartes, the mind-body duality. But it's funny that even these very skeptical, hard-minded materialists are persisting in this delusion. Something that is completely false.
1: Right, and what is most interesting to me about this is that your nervous system actually functions with functions in an electrical manner. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If that if that's like more of a uh, in essence, yes. I've always I've when I've researched the nervous system um, and the neurological system, the way that neurons are fired seems like an electric, it seems very electronic to me. It seems very much like an energy system. And that might just be my interpretation as a shaman and metaphysicist, but it is still an interesting concept to ponder because it's really not too far off the truth, even if you, you know, disagree. Uh, it, it is very much like an electrical energetic system. So the, so your body is very much, uh, oh yeah, actually. (laughs) And in more ways than that, your body does function on energy. Okay. Everything having to do with food and the way that it is processed, it's turned into energy. And your air that you breathe in is turned into energy. Your body is really an energy system. There are so many different ways your body processes and runs on different forms of energy. And what is death really? But a loss of your energy from your body, right? A person is dead when their consciousness and their energy signatures in their body can no longer be measured, right? When someone flatlines at the hospital, that means that their heartbeat has stopped, which means that their pulse has stopped. And what is this? This is a force. Your heartbeat and your pulse is a force of energy throughout your body. I mean, sure, it's a flow of blood, but it is in fact a force causing this flow, an energy force. And when you can no longer measure the pulse of this force, the energy signatures that your body is emitting and Your body and your consciousness ceases to exist to exist and your body stops giving off heat and radiation and your electromagnetic field dies out. That is when you are dead. Okay. So your body (laughs) is something that runs on and produces electromagnetic energy and radiation. It produces electricity and runs on electricity. You know, your neurons and your (laughs) electrons and your Uh, different particles in your brain, your free radicals, these are all energies, right? And your body has many forces in it. It, You know, it has, it, it, uh, it produces heat. It produces a pulse. You know, it has a certain rhythm and force that is your heartbeat, which a force is an energy, right? And also, what was the last thing that I wanted to say? Oh, and also, of course, Your air, you know, air is an energy. It really is. Oxygen, all of these part. Oh, and also your air and your food that you take in, these are energies. These are things that your body needs the energy from, right? Why do you poop after you eat? Because your body only needed the particles and the energies from this food. What are calories? You know, oftentimes even on the ingredient labels, it'll say calories and then in parentheses energy. Why? Because your body turns this food into energy. Your body turns your air into energy. It takes the molecules, breaks them down into their nutrients and their energies that they give your body, and then it excretes the gross matter. So your body is really just an energetic system.
0: Yes, and you could call the brain an electrochemical system because, of course, it's yes. modulated by so so many yep. different molecules. Exactly. Yes, yes, we can do all of those things. So all of this talk has made me think about the things that we're doing to our bodies now. The extended periods of sitting... You're not breathing properly. I should say we're breathing even worse than we once did. Because of course sitting at a desk at a computer screen tends to distract you, your breathing becomes shallow. There are there's electromagnetic pollution, which is debated, but there is evidence to suggest it is not very good for you. Right. So I think that these practices would be wonderful preventive measures. Definitely. For the general population. And if you can prevent the development of some serious diseases for decades, or a decade, then that saves a lot in human suffering and in financial resources.
1: Yes. Yeah, it does. And that's, you know, why shamanism has always... Been focused in any culture on the physical healing aspects because that is, of course, most important. This sustaining of basic human life, you know, any form of shamanism that is lacking in a psychological aspect or maybe one specific type of spiritual practice or theme is never going to be lacking in the physical healing in in most cases. I mean, you might be able to find one here or there that is. Somewhat lacking in physical healing, but generally speaking, all shamanism focuses on physical healing because shaman were expected to be the ones to help sustain human life with these resources that they have.
0: And I understand that you are doing your part to teach people these ancient techniques.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Um, I have a website, which is www.truelifedevelopment.com. That is www.truelifedevelopment.com, T-R-U-E-L-I-F-E. D-E-V-E-L-O-P-M-E-N-T dot com. You can go there now and bookmark it. And here in this website, I have a large number of free resources for you in the way of blog articles and free videos. And And I also have a store. Where I have all of my next level products, you know, all of the time that I could possibly spend offering free resources I spend. But for those who want serious change in their life, either in the physical health realm or the psychological realm or the spiritual realm or the professional realm or the relationship realm, I have resources for you there that will help you to take your life to the next level or to the most ultimate level that you want to take it, depending on, you know, how many of these resources you want to engage with. So I have a set of, so I have a set of, or no, so I have a coursework there, which is called my Power of You course, which is my flagship personal development course, which starts with three Courses on holistic healing, the first and foremost being a dietary healing course, which is of course very foundational and very important. And then the next two are holistic healing courses. The first one, uh, the first one is well, Then the next two are holistic healing courses. The second one just sort of builds upon the first and gets more into the finer points of holistic health and healing. And then I have an ontology and logotherapy course in which I help you to discover your core identity and your life's purpose and your life's work. And we work on your core values and passions and how to fulfill yourself and the meaning and purpose of your life and become self-actualized as a person. And then I have a set of two psychology courses, which are each two parts. And it's a very great psychology course, which I call a user's guide to the mind. And I'm very proud of it and highly recommend that and the logotherapy and ontology course to anyone who wants to help themselves become self-actualized both mentally and in their lifestyle and who they are as a person and how they live their life. And then after that, I have a course on success, which is a professional course and teaches you every skill you could possibly need for success. It's a five-hour course and Is really awesome. It's again something I'm very proud of because it teaches you success in every context. It's called Secret Formulas for Success. And that, and it teaches you specific formulas for success in any situation. You know, I have like a two week formula, which you're going day by day, taking steps every day to succeed over the course of two weeks. I have steps for getting the job you want. I have steps for influencing people. Um, I have like a, a longer, more abstract lifestyle formula. Uh, it's just there's steps for every different case. And most ultimately, I teach entrepreneurship and professional law of attraction skills as well in this course. It's just a really great course that will help you succeed in every way you want to. And then beyond that, as you can see, every course Advances upon the last one and causes you to be more and more successful in more and more ultimate ways in your life. And beyond this one, I then have a series of 10 Law of Attraction courses, which take you through every aspect of the Law of Attraction the general concepts and the physics of the Law of Attraction so that I teach you all of the theories both in the philo- in the philosophical and in the actual physics and mechanics of the law of attraction and then I teach you different practices I teach you general practices and then I teach you the law of attraction in health and business the law of attraction in relationships the law of attraction in <coughs> the law of attraction in health and business and money the law of attraction in relationships and the law of attraction in your spiritual practices so I teach you everything you could possibly ever need to know about the law of attraction over the course of these 10 distinct courses. And then I have a self-analysis and personality archetypes and profiles course in which you learn about yourself and what personality type you have using Various formats, several different formats of personality typology, which is one of my specialties. And you learn how to perform self analysis and really find out about your personality and character and who you are as a person more. You know, this builds upon the ontology and logotherapy course uh, where you discover your core identity. This teaches you about your personality type and, of course, how you can delve into that deeper and apply that to the world. Over the course of Over the course of seven Law of Attraction courses, which take you through every aspect of the Law of Attraction that you could possibly need to know about in order to live your life to the fullest and have the lifestyle that you want in the most ultimate way. And I'm teaching you this not just in... The sort of New Agey teachings of the Law of Attraction that I'm that I'm sure you've heard of, with the Secret and everything. I actually have my own way of teaching this, as someone who is very much into physics and metaphysics and psychology and shamanism and you know professionalism. I teach this in a very full and complete way that is very scientific. This is, again, not just New Age philosophy. It is something that is rational and scientific in the way that I teach it. And I teach it in different ways than most people have heard about it. You know, I use, uh, different language and I use different concepts and have my own specific theories for teaching it, which I feel are more scientific and my own formulas for teaching it, which I feel are more technical and more specific and more effective as well. So I'll be teaching you actual formulas for getting what you want using the law of attraction in each course and teaching you different specific scientific theories behind it. And then lastly, what I think many people who have listened to this podcast are going to be interested in most ultimately is my Introduction to Shamanism and Spiritual Pathwork course. This is a five-hour intensive workshop in which you learn all of the basics about shamanism and spiritual pathwork. I teach you all of the theories behind shamanism. I teach you about all of the major shamanic traditions found in the world. I teach you about, I teach you about the shamanic mindsets and how to be a shaman and become someone who does this shamanic work. Uh it's something that I, I just give you everything you need to know at an introductory level so that you can enter into the practice of shamanism and spiritual pathwork and understand everything that is behind it in a very traditional context. Again, this is not new agey stuff. I'm not just like, you know, oh, well, just get some sage and a feather and start praying to your spirit guides. You know, I'm not a new agey shamanic practitioner. I'm someone who has been studying shamanism for almost 15 years. I no, Yeah, about actually more than 15 years. I forget how old I am. (laughs) I'm someone who has been studying and practicing shamanism for over 15 years in different traditions. And I'm also a very and I'm a very academic thinker. So you're going to be learning about this in a extreme academic context. And you're going to learn so much about different shamanic traditions and practices and the theories behind them. It's a really great course that I am very proud of. And that is what concludes my flagship course. As you can see, I go through the uh, physical health aspects into the psychological into the professional and then the law of attraction and spiritual and conclude with this and conclude th- with this workshop on shamanism so I'm taking you from point a of working on the foundational aspects of personal development that are your health. Through all of the other aspects, up to the most ultimate, which is the spiritual, in which you can actually become a shaman yourself. And these courses are all audio courses pre recorded so that you can listen to them on your own time at your leisure. And I use audio because I feel as though it's the most effective way for someone to learn because you can. You know, pause the recording and take notes anytime you want to and you're not on some sort of time schedule. And it's also something where I can offer this stuff at a reduced price and reach more people that way too. And you can also use it whenever you want. You can be in the car listening to this. You can be listening to it while you're doing dishes, taking a shower, cleaning your house, doing anything where you can have audio playing. And you don't have to actually attend a live in-person workshop where you have to actually take time off from your life to go to the workshop, which is going to cost more and you can't press pause if you want to stop and take a note because you missed something, right? So I find this to be the most effective learning tool and I hope that everyone engages in this and will at least pick and choose the courses out of this that they need because I have actually, uh, I have listed these all separately. Even my law of attraction courses are all listed separately so that you can pick out the ones that you want and depending on which ones you want for different purposes. And also, if you're hearing this and for just $97, which the normal price for these all together would be $400. And I also have my super healing package, which again is over $400 normally and consists of all of my healing workshops the three audio workshops that I told you about as well as a acupuck as well as a acupressure video workshop and my biotechnology track for healing my hypnosis track for healing and a special report on how to never get sick again all for $497 and if you have heard this and you want to mix and match a bunch of stuff in a special package for you, just contact me. I'll give you a free consultation and help you to form a special package for yourself, which you will not have to pay full price for. Anyone who wants to buy a large number of products should contact me because anytime someone wants to do that, I never make them pay full price for everything. I will form a package for them and give it to them at a lower cost because I like taking care of people who are taking the initiative to take care of themselves. Okay, I'm here to help you help yourself. So if you're going to be doing that in my store and selecting a variety of products, just contact me and I'll help you to create a special package which you will not have to pay full price for. And if you are looking for one-on-one services, I am available for personal development programs.